Well, we do find ourselves in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Romans 8, verse 23. And we're going to read verse 23 through verse 27 this morning. And this is going to be our text that we will consider. Romans 8, verse 23. Go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word or the Pew Bible in front of you and read along with me. Romans 8, 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You know, one of the best ways to grow in your Christian faith is to know God better. Learning about God has been an ongoing fount of devotional fascination in my life. And I know I'm not alone. And one of my favorite books that I think every Christian should read at some point is the classic book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's one of the most helpful books of reminding us who God is, how we then ought to orient our lives to reflect our knowledge of this glorious God and even why we can trust him. Now, the starting point to understand who God is must always be knowing God as Trinity or knowing God as triune. And as we'll see from our text, the triune God is not some cold, stodgy doctrine. It's not something that theologians just argue about in their own little private categories in life. It's rich with emotional and practical applications. Not to mention, if you get the Trinity wrong, you actually worship another God. Because the core essence of who God is, is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit as one God. Well, back in the early days of the Christian church, there was virtually no argument on the essential nature of the Trinity, on the divinity of Jesus and the divinity of the Spirit, the unique personhood of God the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the scriptures were preserved and taught very clearly from the beginning that God is one, yet with distinct persons. Uh, the, the typical way that is easiest to understand this is God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. And yet God the Father is God and God the Son is God and God the Spirit is God. Get that? Is not, is not, is. Okay? It's not impossible to understand, but it's the simplest way to understand the, the, the uh, categories. They are not the, exactly the same. They are three persons, yet there's one God, hence Trinity or triunity. Well, in Genesis 1, we see the Trinity from the very beginning because God has a conversation 
He says, let us make man in our image. How does that happen? Unless there is three persons of the Trinity to have a conversation. The angels are not the image of God. The angels are not part of this conversation. This conversation then is between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we see this then throughout the Bible. The Trinity is taught clearly in scriptures. And you fast forward a few hundred years in church history and more and more pagans who had converted to Christianity then bring with them different philosophical ideas about God and arguments erupt about the Trinity and how to know how we should speak of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's admittedly complex. And one period when the debate was particularly hot was the end of the 4th century, when a group of so-called Christians began to teach that Jesus wasn't, in fact, eternally and fully God, that he was a created being. This heresy was called Arianism, and it's alive and well today. Jehovah's Witnesses are the same belief. Mormons, the same belief. Well, the debate spilled out into the whole society for over 50 years. And in fact, in Constantinople, the conflict had so gripped even the common people that listen to what Gregory of Nyssa wrote about the time and what people were saying. He said, if you ask a person to give you some small change for a large coin, his response is to philosophize about what distinguishes the father from the son. If you ask about the price of a loaf, the shopkeeper's response is that the father is greater than the son and the son is inferior. If you ask a bath attendant whether your bath is ready, you will have to rest satisfied with the attendant's response that the son has been generated out of nothing. And so it went. You see, genuine Christians were so animated about this debate because what you think of God is perhaps the most important thing about you. It shows who you worship, how you worship, who you aim to become, and whether or not you serve the Almighty Creator or some phantom or figment of men's imagination. In case you're wondering who won, clearly the Trinitarians won that debate, uh, and, and the Arians were understood to not teach what the Bible taught. As you know, in God, as he reveals himself to be, is vital to get correct but it is also vital because it changes how we live our lives the fact that god is triune affects our lives when we are at our most vulnerable when we are needy when we in fact are at our weakest knowing god is triune is incredibly helpful look down at romans 8 verse 26 likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Beloved, this is the theme of these verses. This is a text about the intimate role of God the Holy Spirit in our lives. About the interplay between God the Spirit and God the Father. This is a text that draws us with immediate applications and fervent desires to rest on God, who, of course, is always greater than we are. And as we consider the greatness of God, we can't help but feel small, especially because of the imminent reality of suffering. 
we all should have this lingering realization as we live life, man, I am weak, and I need a strong God. And so we see the glorious reminder in our text that even though Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, even though we have never seen the Father, God the Holy Spirit indwells each of us. He has called us. He has given us a new heart. He's even called the great comforter. And in these verses, we're going to see how he comforts. And so as we study these verses this morning, we're going to see five reasons why we need the Spirit's help. These are five reasons why we need to feel dependent on God, the Holy Spirit. Now, this text gets to who God is and reminds us again of our frailty, of how we are prone to suffering of all kinds, and then how God the Spirit helps us when we're weak. Well, the first reason why we need the Spirit's help is, number one, the Spirit affirms our glorious adoption. The Spirit affirms our glorious adoption. Last week, we heard the groans of creation, and creation was teaching us some lessons as it groaned. Its groans were really of two emotions, a groan of pain, a groan of weakness, a groan of enduring God's curse for sin, but it's also a groan of eager anticipation of a glorious future, a groan that looks forward to the glorious eternal state, the groan that compares the current sufferings and at the same time, eagerly looks forward to the glories of a new creation. And that's why Paul calls these groans, groans of childbirth, to capture that double reference. Look at verse 22, Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And remember, we said that if we're in the hospital and you hear across the hallway cries and groans and screams of a woman in agony, it makes all the difference in the world if you're on the oncology ward or the maternity ward. Fair enough? The pains of childbirth are intense, but they are not without hope. The great joy that, that new life is coming into the world makes it a little bit more bearable. And so it is with this creation. It speaks through storms and earthquakes and floods, and it groans through famines, groaning, as it were, in its weakness under the painful curse of God, while also groaning in eager anticipation of the coming new creation. It's this double emotional groaning that's supposed to be on our lips, too. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. 
John Calvin wrote, a twofold feeling is required in believers to groan, being loaded with a sense of their present misery, and still, on the other hand, to expect with patience our future deliverance. So that, that twofold sense of this groaning, this twofold emotional response, it's an anticipation that makes our weakness, our suffering, endurable because our eyes end up being fixed on God's goal. Now, when we're honest, we all have suffering, and at times, this just feels impossible. I've been there. I'm guessing you've been there. The real pain of sickness literally brings you to your knees. As you recover from a surgery and then you seem to be in a constant fog and you can't even think straight. As you've endured years of feeling like your whole world is dark and without hope. As you seem stuck in endless cycles of stress, anxiety, and sinful habits that you, you just feel like you can't break. The more acute the suffering, the more hopeless we often feel. So how exactly is our groaning supposed to look to eternity when our current suffering feels like Mount Everest? It starts by having a higher view of what is to come. In our most lucid moments, we ought to think regularly with great detail and fascination and attention of heaven and what it means so that we can do what 2 Corinthians 4.17 says. It says, uh, Paul reminds us, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, the weight of glory beyond all comparison is Mount Everest and your current suffering, no matter how intense, is a Michigan mountain. You know what I'm talking about, right? The highest mountains in this part of Michigan is basically trash heaps that have been piled up and now uh, ski hills are built on them, right? This is not Mount Everest that we're going down in Mount Brighton, right? This is a trash heap. Imagine you've got some scales here, right? You know, the, the justice scales, of the, you know, the two weight things. You got Mount Everest right here on one hand and you got Michigan Mountain on the other. Which is weightier? Mount Everest, right? That's what this verse is trying to help us get into our thick skulls. The, the light momentary suffering, as intense as it is, as real as it is, as, as, as much as you feel hopeless, that is a Michigan mountain. The hope of glory, the, the future that you have reserved for you in heaven because you are adopted into God's eternal family, that's Mount Everest. And so Paul tells us this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so we're reminded that heaven is this glorious new creation where we will get to enjoy all the blessings of this world yet without sin, sickness, suffering. And then there's the weightiness of time, right? I mean, you've got eternity and like 70 or 80 years. Like, you can't even compare those two, right? 
And so Christians, we are able to rightly groan over our suffering, but not like those without hope, because we keep our eyes glued to the weight of glory. And even more intently, when we are suffering. So how is it that we can do this? Is it only by our own strength of mind, our own abilities to focus on the future? Is this is something we just have to buckle down and do? Verse 23 shows us it's because we have the first fruits of the Spirit that we're able to do this. Look at verse 23. Not only the creation groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. And remember, groaning is two references. It's referring to groaning over the suffering and groaning in eager anticipation of our future. So we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And how is it that that happens? It's because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. The profound work of the Spirit in our lives comes the moment we've been adopted as children of God, but our adoption isn't complete. See, the Spirit gives us eyes to see what we already are and what we will become. Both what we already are and what we will become are tied to our adoption, our our new family arrangement, right? Verse 23, the end, it says, we are groaning inwardly and we're waiting eagerly for what? Just the redemption of our bodies? Just a new creation? What does it say? Our adoption as sons and daughters. Go back to Romans 8, 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Ahaba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, God the Holy Spirit specifically works in and through us to keep our eyes focused on the intimate fatherly care of God because you are now adopted into his family, which has present ramifications. We are presently adopted. We can cry, Abba, Father, now. But we also look forward to that day when our faith becomes sight and when we get to experience the intimacy of heaven with God forever. See, both are referenced. We're reminded that we are not orphans in this world, flailing about in our suffering. No, we belong to God, body and soul, both in life and death. It is a gift to know this now. We need the Spirit's help, remembering that he has brought us into God's family. He has given us new life as a precursor to eternity. Our adoption means the weight of all that God owns is going to be shared with us. Wealth, blessings, life without measure. This isn't some pie in the sky. This is how God reveals himself to us. He is God the Father who adopts us into his eternal family. He is God the Spirit, who affirms our glorious adoption in our hearts. We need the Spirit's help to remember these truths. Second reason we need the Spirit, number two, the Spirit gives us an enduring hope. 
The Spirit gives us an enduring hope. Hope is a powerful motivator. It's why athletes are taught to envision sticking the landing on their dive before they dive or hitting a shot before they take their shot. And yet the fact of the matter is, athletes all know this, you're still going to fail no matter how much you envision it. Right? If, if I go up to the high dive and I envision sticking this dive with you know, no splash and do a triple you know, thing, as much as I envision it, it's never happening because I have no idea what I'm doing, right? Okay? But even those who know what they're doing, they're going to fail on occasion. And famously, baseball is one of those failure sports. One out of every four times a batter gets up to bat, he fails. Okay, That's just how it works, even for professionals. But here's the deal. Hope in God never fails. And we need the Holy Spirit to constantly point us to a certain and enduring hope. Look at the end of verse 23 again. I'm going to get a head start into 24. It says, So we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, which is the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. You see, this hope is the certain hope of our redeemed bodies, of the culmination of our adoption. In this hope, we were, past tense, saved. And so this hope of eternal life is the culminating part of the gospel message. Let me help you let this sink in a little bit. When you think of the gospel do you think that that must include heaven? Absolutely. For that is the final hope, the glory that we're looking forward to. The gospel is not just good news about Jesus dying for us, as important as that is. We need the beginning and the end of the story. We need everything in between. We need God's gospel. And you see, what makes a Christian a Christian is that we think good and right things about Jesus and we want to live for him forever. Not simply that he gives us our best life now. We actually believe that God's salvation affects most profoundly our eternal future, not most profoundly our life now. And we don't just think of heaven as some place where we go with a toga, a golden harp, and just sing for thousands and thousands of years. Right? That's not heaven. The Bible doesn't teach heaven like that. And the gospel teaches us is that all creation is going to be new and our bodies are going to be perfected forever. See, the gospel message begins at creation and ends at new creation. It answers life's biggest problems about what is wrong with this world, about how sin now infects everything, especially the heart of every man, woman, and child from birth until death. We are unable to then perfectly obey God's commands and laws. We all, we all sin in thought and word and deed, even our being. We all neglect to worship God as we ought, with our whole heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, as God tells us we should. And so the starting question that we need to encourage people to ask, that we need to ask, is, am I really a sinner if we need to understand the gospel, that's the, the first question you need to kind of wrestle through. And you need to understand this question because it is so vital to understanding your need for a Savior. 
And so we just answered that question last week in our catechism. We said, what is sin? This is the answer we all said. Sin is not thinking or saying. It's not being or doing what God requires in his law. And if that simple statement right there, just taken by itself, is fleshed out, we're all guilty. Because Jesus himself says, you've heard the law says of old, don't murder. And he says, I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, it's like you've committed murder in your heart. Well, yikes, okay? Every one of us has failed there. And that's his point. But then the definition continues. It says, and the root of all sin is the truth of God not sought. The holiness of God, not reverenced. The promises of God, not trusted. The wrath of God, not feared, ignored. And the person of God, not loved. So it's not just those things that we do, but it's those things that we don't do. The ways that we simply reject God. And with that definition, we all fall short. And so in spite of sin, God's love for us abounds all the more. And so he sent us a redeemer, one who would purchase us from the slavery to sin, which we all fall into by the nature of being born. And so he sends God the Son. Jesus comes. He takes on flesh, perfect God, perfect man, two person, two uh, natures in one person, and he lives a perfect life a life that we couldn't live, and he suffers on the cross, not because he was on the wrong place at the wrong time, but he suffers on the cross because God the Father pours out the wrath for our sins while he's hanging there on the cross. He dies on the cross, physically dies, and then he is raised again to new life. And that resurrection then is essential to the culmination of the hope that we have in the gospel, isn't it? Which, of course, speaks to our hope of a resurrection and eternal life. See, gospel hope always includes the hope of a greater and glorious end, a new body. Beloved, what is the response to the gospel then that saves? It's very simply genuine faith. Trusting God more than what you think about God. A settled trust that Christ alone is the only way to be right with God and to have a certain hope of eternal life. A trust that results in a turning from sin and a turning towards righteousness. A trust that aims to orient your life towards how God tells us to live in his word. Now, if I want to know how to repair my car, I'm going to take it to a certified mechanic. It's because I have no idea what I'm doing with my car. I could try. I've tried. I've got myself into trouble, okay? Just does not work. Some of you are not like that. Some of you are great with that, okay? But that's not me. So what do I do? I take myself to a certified mechanic. And what am I looking for in a certified mechanic? A mechanic who has been trained, who's passed a bunch of tests, and told by the one who designed the car how to fix said car. Such is the case then with us. In order to know how best to live, how best to think, then we need to turn to our designer. Saving faith then recognizes that God is our creator and sustainer and that he alone has the authority and the right to tell us how to live. He's the one who knows how we should best live now and forever. And God is the one who tells us even how it all ends. 
how our adoption brings about eternal life. You see, this enduring and certain hope is essential to the gospel. So verse 24 tells us, For in this hope, this hope of redemption, this hope of final adoption, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? See, Paul reiterates the point. A Christian's hope is a future hope, and it is a certain hope. He says, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, that is future things, we wait for it with patience. And that last phrase focuses on what we do with our Christian hope. We wait for it patiently. Or you could translate that word patiently, enduringly, or with endurance. We endure in God's hope because we trust that it is certain. We know God. We know that he is trustworthy. And so, therefore, we trust that he is able to bring about the hope that he promises. That is saving faith. It is a faith that endures, and it's a faith that is empowered by God the Holy Spirit. You see, we don't conjure up hope through the power of positive thinking, through visualizing success. No, we are gifted hope as a first fruit of the Holy Spirit, ours from the very first day that we believed, and enduring to the end. And so we need the Holy Spirit because the Spirit affirms our glorious adoption. We need the Holy Spirit too because the Spirit gives us an enduring hope. And now number three, we need the Spirit because we don't always know what to pray. We don't always know what to pray. Not only does the Bible give us this majestic view of God, this powerful picture of the sovereign creator who plans the end from the beginning, the Bible also shows us a very real picture of ourselves. There's no room in any church for plastic saints. Remembering Paul is considering, according to verse 18, the sufferings of this present time. He tells us creation groans. He tells us that we ourselves groan, eagerly looking forward to the hope that we have in a new creation while mourning the suffering of this present time. So we repeatedly see in this passage that Christians will suffer, and the full complement of the typical sufferings are going to be present in this present time. You're going to suffer because you still sin. Who still sins in this room? We all do, okay? You're going to suffer because you still sin. You know where you're also going to suffer? You're going to suffer because you live in a society and in a family with other sinners. And people are going to sin against you. Third way you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer because of a corrupt world. That's going to bring persecution. It's going to bring all sorts of flaws and errors in the system. You're going to suffer because of a sickness or disease and, yes, death, unless the Lord calls us home before then. And you're going to suffer because of natural disasters of all kinds. Storms, floods. And sometimes when our suffering is strongest, I think we admittedly don't know what we 
should pray. So verse 26 meets us right there, doesn't it? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Very clearly, a typical weakness that accompanies life is that we don't understand how and what we should pray. How many of you have been in a Christian small group, maybe at a friend's house, or you're all sitting there about to do something that you want to begin, and you know what's coming. You know that the pastor, the small group leader, your friend, they're going to ask you to pray. And what do you want to do at that moment? You just say, I wish I could just blend into this couch. I wish I could kind of find and go and hide away, right? How many of you have been there? As much as we can all relate, worrying that our prayers before people won't be good enough, what is perhaps harder is when we are all alone and your hot tears are flowing. You sit in shame. Or maybe you sit in anger and sorrow commingled in a putrid mind stew. And you aren't even sure how you're supposed to pray. You might not be sure even if you want to pray at all. You've been there. I've been there. But brothers and sisters, it's in moments like this when we are at our lowest that we need the Holy Spirit more. When we don't know what to pray, what does he say in verse 26? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we aren't sure what the outcome would most please God that we, we should want for our lives, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we aren't sure what outcome is going to be best, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That's why we need to turn to the Holy Spirit when we're at our weakest. To give you an example of this, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. Philippians 1, verse 20. As Paul is writing the book to the Philippians, he is writing from prison. And at this point, Paul isn't sure what is going to happen to him. There's a decent chance he's going to be released because he's really done no crime. But persecution against Christians has already ramped up a few different times, and he could also die. Frankly, he doesn't know which would be better. As he's collecting his thoughts and as he's been thinking through this and probably praying through this, no doubt praying through this, he puts these amazing words to paper for us, preserved by God the Holy Spirit, so that we can be encouraged when we don't know what to do either. And look at Philippians 1, verse 20 with me. He says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Look, he's not sure what's going to happen. This is literally a life or death situation. But Paul is resolved, no matter what, to make Christ honored. 
Whichever comes, life or death, he wants to make sure that Christ is honored. And how is it that he's been strengthened to think this way? It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, go back a verse. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. One way or another, life or death, he'll be delivered into something better. Because he knows and he trusts that God will work all things together for his good. One way or another, he's going to be delivered. So he continues, verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, hopefully you won't ever be in prison wondering whether or not life or death is coming. But what I do know is there are going to be plenty of times in your life when you're suffering and you know you're weak. Plenty of times when you don't even know what to say to God. Plenty of times when you aren't even sure if you want to talk to God. And the Spirit helps you in your weakness. Go back to Romans 8. And next we get to see how it is that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, how he opens up an avenue to faith. Number four, the Spirit prompts our groans of trust. Number four, the Spirit prompts our groans of trust. When I don't know what to say, or I'm not sure if I want to even come to God, sometimes all I can muster up as far as prayer is something like this. God, help. God, help. God, help. Have you ever prayed that prayer? God, help. Those are the prayers that the Spirit prompts in our hearts. Because isn't it just as tempting in those moments to wallow in pain. Isn't it just as tempting to give your greatest inner voice to repeated lies? Things like, this is the worst. This is the worst. Instead of, God, help. God, help. This is the worst. This is the worst. Life isn't worth living. Life isn't worth living. Life isn't worth living. I hate my wife. I hate my wife. My parents are so stupid. They're so mean. I hate life. Or whatever it is that you are tempted to repeat in your mind. It is just as likely to be drawn to say that than to groan to God. But when you gain victory over your struggle, you're going to be groaning to God. It may not be eloquent, but it will be directed to the only one who can help. 
And in verse 26, we see that it comes directly from the Holy Spirit. Look at the beginning of verse 26 again. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, at this point, we need to do a little bit of grammar. When he says likewise there, we need to understand what this is referring to. The word likewise points to something else before that the Holy Spirit had done. So how is the Holy Spirit's helping similar to what came before? When was the last time the Holy Spirit did something for the believer in this passage? Draw your eyes back up. Find the Holy Spirit as a subject. Look, look, look. Where do you see it? Where do you see it? Hopefully your eyes are resting on verses 15 and 16. Read those with me again. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And verse 16, this is it. This is the last time before verse 26 where the spirit speaks and the spirit is the one who is acting. Here he says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, the Holy Spirit secures our redemption and then leads Christians to realize that we are forever God's children, that we are co-heirs with Christ. And even though we are co-heirs with Christ, what do we see in verse 17? If we're his children, then we're heirs, heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. Great news, but then the end of verse 17, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In spite of this great comfort that the Spirit gives, that we are children of God, we are told that we must suffer. And this suffering plagues all of us. Creation groans. It then says, we groan. And now we'll see when that groan is directed towards God, looking for help from him as our Heavenly Father, that that groaning that we have in our own hearts is prompted by God the Holy Spirit. Go back in verse 26 now. We see likewise then, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. How? For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. All right, so what are these groanings that are too deep for words? Who is doing the groanings? Some think that this is the Spirit's groans. Perhaps it's speaking in the language of the Holy Spirit, a a spiritual prayer language, or some might call it tongues. But we know that tongues literally means the language, and here there's unspoken groanings of the heart because it says at the end of verse 26 right these are groanings that are too deep for words it means without many words also tongues are reserved for a few but verses 26 and 27 they describe a lot of every single christian who suffers because this is what we have to go through in this life this is what we do every time we're weak when we don't know what we should pray The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He prays for us. And so I think the groaning that's being talked about in verse 26 is pretty clear. It's our groans that are prompted 
by, directed by, originating from the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And this is why this is so important. Are not God the Holy Spirit and God the Father equally God? Of course. Is not the Holy Spirit perfectly capable of expressing with crystal clarity anything that he wants directly to God? Well, of course. So I doubt these are the Spirit's groanings to the Father, as the Spirit doesn't know what to say, and, and the Father has to somehow interpret his groans. That's not what this is talking about. Groaning in our passage is a sign of weakness. It's a sign of confusion. It's a sign that accompanies suffering. So I think it's pretty clear. The Spirit prompts our groans and then articulates our groans to the Father with great language and clarity. Isn't that what he did in verse 15 and 16 too? Go back there in those two verses. Verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is a type of groaning. Daddy, Father, Abba, Father. It's a groaning prayer. Who prays that groaning prayer? We do. How do we pray that prayer? By the Holy Spirit. Spirit. You see that? It's by whom we are able to cry. And so the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's the same idea with our groans. The Holy Spirit likewise helps us to groan towards God, a groan of trust. And so in the fog of suffering, sometimes it is a win just simply to turn to God and say, God, help. You won't always know what God's will is in every situation. But here's what's incredibly comforting. A fifth reason we need the Spirit's help. Number five, the Spirit turns our groans into God's will. The Spirit turns our groans into God's will. So even as the Spirit prompts us to groan, He in turn intercedes for us prays for us, perfectly according to God's will for us. We have the Holy Spirit speaking for us when we don't know how to speak. Think about the profundity, profundity of that. See, Paul gives a snapshot within the triune God of the interplay between God the Father and God the Holy Spirit here. And that interplay between God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, it's about keeping us in our moment of hope. It's about preserving our hope, enduring our faith, to turn back to God even as we suffer, even as we're groaning in confusion. The weight of this inner Trinitarian love, this fatherly care, should astound us. And it should cause us to want even more a future with intimate access to God in his good, new, and glorious creation. See, the more you look into who God is and how God works, the stronger the motivation to live always for his glory. And to echo Paul in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ to die is gain. Let's see how Paul describes the Holy Spirit's ministry in verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Who searches hearts here? 
Well, it can't be the Holy Spirit because he also knows the mind of the Spirit, right? Is this not God the Father? I mean, just listen to a couple of uh, passages that speak of God the Father searching out hearts. First Chronicles 28, verse 9, David charges his son with these words, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind, for Yahweh searches all hearts and understands every plan and every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will be cast, he will cast you off forever. And famously, David says in Psalm 139, the beginning of that glorious psalm, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. And so is it not God who searches our hearts, our groanings and confusion that are commingled with trust? What a great encouragement then that the Father intimately listens to our great comforter, the Holy Spirit. Verse 27 continues, he says, And he who searches hearts, that's God the Father who searches our hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes, that is, he prays, that is, he communicates directly and clearly for the saints. That's for Christians, that's for all of us. Why and how? According to the will of God. In other words, the Father knows intimately the mind of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is always interceding for us according to God's perfect will. He's always praying for us according to God's perfect will for our lives. Think about the context of how this fits in. You see, this happens when we are weak, when we don't know what to pray. When all we can do is groan, clinging to a faint hope of Christ. And the Spirit turns our groans into God's will. See, embedded in this reality is that we will not always know God's perfect, final, detailed will for everything in our life before it happens. You cannot know that. We may want sunshine instead of rain, but God knows what you need. We may want healing instead of death, but God knows what's best. We may want a certain type of child, but God gave you the child he gave you, designed for you and him. We may want any myriad of things, and some even teach us to claim things that we want in our circle. There's this kind of idea of praying, praying in a circle, and you pray it in Jesus' name and, and you know, have enough faith and it'll come. But the fact of the matter is, prayer is never taught that way. Our prayers are to be humble, for we don't always know God's perfect will before it happens. I know some of you might be saying at this point, okay, Pastor Ben, are you saying that we can't pray for healing? We can't pray for something that we really want, that we think is, is really good, the salvation of our family members? That's not at all what I'm saying. Pray for healing. Pray for a salvation of a family member. Pray for a restored relationship. Pray for rain to go away. But you are not bending God's will with your prayers. You are not bending God's will with any amount of faith that you have mustered up. In fact, sometimes God's will is to say no to your prayers. And that's not your problem. 
He knows what you need. Do we trust that? And when we are in our darkest moments of suffering, sometimes the best thing you can do is groan because your prayers have been repeatedly answered. No, 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 no. And I just I can't do anything else but, but groan at this point. The Spirit helps us groan to trust God. And we say, God, help. You need to realize that God, the Holy Spirit, then turns our groans into prayers for God's perfect will for our lives. We should be incredibly encouraged that in spite of our weakness to be able to express perfect prayers to God, God is, God's will is being fulfilled always. It's being fulfilled because God the Holy Spirit is interceding for us and always receives a yes to every single one of his prayers That's how the deep groanings of our hearts accomplish God's perfect will. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And doesn't that fit seamlessly into perhaps the Christian's favorite verse that it happens to be the next verse? Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. To see how God works, to see the inner Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Holy Spirit is not just some theoretical information here for philosophers to ponder. Knowing God, knowing how he works, affects how you groan. Knowing that God, the Holy Spirit, prompts our groans of trust and then turns them into God's will is perhaps the most immediately encouraging devotional thought available to anybody who's suffering. For when I don't know how to pray, don't know what's going to happen, I can rest assured God will never leave his children. God, the Holy Spirit, is always there to intercede for us. So that certainly all things work together for our good. Here's an example of what this looks like. Taken from the prayers of Philip Doddridge, who was a pastor in the 1740s in Great Britain. This is a prayer for his dying father. I turn to you in my doubt and uncertainty. Lord, I know that you live forever. You are the one who determines life and death. You bring us down to the grave and only you can say, return. So if there's still room for prayer, please hear mine on your servant's behalf. Would you spare him yet a while that he might recover strength once more? But if he is out of reach of this prayer, help us to accept your wise will. We adore your name, and your praise mingles with our tears. And though we would mourn the loss of our loved one, even so we rejoice to think that we do not mourn like those who have no hope. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Jesus' name, amen. Our groanings may not be as eloquent, but they should reflect a humble trust and the only one worthy 
of humbly trusting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful lesson of how you work in our weakness of how you bring us through so many different trials and tribulations and difficulties in our lives, how you help us to suffer well. Lord, help us to lean, to realize that we need God, the Holy Spirit, interceding for us. Help us to pray at times groans of trust, mourning, the effects of suffering, and looking forward to the eternal weight of glory. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your grace. Instruct our hearts to live this way this week. In Jesus' name, amen.